Okay, before we begin today, I have something to bring up. Uh, when we were in Scotland, we showed up to the interview with uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, and this was the pair of shoes that Tom <laughs> oh, no. was wearing, okay? Converse. They make the interview, by the way, that's coming out, that we're putting out. Then, do, wait, wait, wait. Do they match his hair? Do they match the hair? Are his shoes meant to be like that? Are shoes meant to be like that? shoes meant to be like that? Yeah, the laces are a bit floppy, so yes. Uh, <laughs> not maybe 72 hours later, I'm on my phone and I see a picture pop up and it's Christiana and Tom with the uh, Duchess of Cambridge and he's wearing a full tux. Uh, but unfortunately, the bottom of the picture is cut. I cannot see his shoes. So I need was to he's wearing, wearing the same shoes. He's he wearing... was wearing the same shoes. I don't believe it's it. It's not true. It's not true. I am... But it shows that he's got disrespect for Scotland and it's divine it's, no, right. No, 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 because no, no. she is the, basically the queen of Scotland and that's it, the princess of England. And, you know, you've got to kind of get your priorities here. In my defence, I simply didn't read the brief about where we were going for the interview. <laughs> is that really a good defence? <laughs> No, I, I just want to know shop. what shoes you were wearing. I don't need to. I don't need an explanation. No, I think no, no. There's no. There's something about coherence here, right? You have to give it to Tom. Coherence. I mean, coherence, top to bottom, top with the hair, bottom with the shoes, and there's coherence. There you go. <laughs> of a of a kind, of a kind, of a kind. All right. Thank you, Clay. Did it? Did did. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the narrowing path to COP26 and the commitments that are now fortunately coming in. We discuss the incredible week we had in Scotland at TED Countdown, and we talk about the amazing evening that we had on Sunday at the launch of the Earthshot Prize. Plus, we have an interview with First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, and we have music from Divest. Thanks for being here. So what a week we have had. We what have been week. so privileged in the what last week. week to just be inspired Together. by this incredible event that have, for me anyway, and I'm very keen to hear both of your analysis, demonstrated how far we've come, how exciting this transformation is, and just how possible it is. Let's start off with Sunday night, when the first ever Earthshot Prize was awarded to five winners in London. Christiana and I were there at Alexandra Palace. It was an incredible evening. Christiana, why don't you share with the listeners what it was like to be in that in that room, in that auditorium when this happened? Well, uh, just for starters, I must say, I have never seen a production like this. The staging, the music, the orchestration, the coming in, they actually managed to seamlessly weave in six different stages that were distributed around the world. We had the stage here in London at the so-called Ali Pali, the Alexander Palace, but also <laughs> five stages around the world of the five winners who didn't know that they were the only ones that had that stage. They actually thought all 15 finalists had a stage set up for them. But the production managed to bring in those five plus the one in Ali Pali um, with, a, with a coherence and a punch and a beauty that I have honestly never seen before. 
Yeah, it was incredible. And I mean, what an amazing range of people. I mean, David Attenborough kicked it off. There were musical performances from Ed Sheeran um, and Coldplay, who played this incredibly beautiful set outside Alexandra Palace, completely powered by bicycles, people who were pedaling just around <laughs> them. Um, and, and Christian, I don't know. I mean, anything you want to say about the winners? Did anything strike you? Did any 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 particular yeah. winner that there I, was, <laughs> you know, a country or something, you know, like that? I'm not sure I want to go down that route because you will you will just, you know, pounce on me. <laughs> no, we're very proud of Costa Rica. We tease you. Exactly. I mean, you know, however you want to identify yourself, an announcement, Costa Rica won one of the Earthshot Prize Awards for just being the most spectacularly brilliant country and the president and his delightful family who were looking, some of them a little bit restless, gave a charming speech on camera and it was very moving and very wonderful. Yes, well... So why we should say there are five categories in the Earthshot Prize. Costa Rica did win the Protect and Restore Nature uh, Prize. We had a phenomenal uh, project from India that won the Clean Air. We had two brothers from the Bahamas that won Revive Our Oceans. Uh, Coral, Coral Vita. Vita. Yes, phenomenal. We had the mayor of Milan who won uh, the Build a Waste-Free World. Um, and we had a uh, a small but incredibly promising company that is producing electrolyzers, um, AAM electrolyzer winning the Fix Our Climate. So very, very exciting. And yes, to everyone who noticed that Costa Rica won one of the five prizes and that, yes, I am on the jury of the Earthshot. I do want to say that when I found out that Costa Rica was a candidate, I recused myself from that uh. one category and participated in the deliberations of the other categories. Having said that, because... Uh, that was clearly the only thing to do. Um, I'm, of course, delighted. I'm delighted for Costa Rica. I'm also delighted for all of the other winners. But you know what I'm most delighted about? That the Earthshot Prize has decided that they're not just going to give some capital to these um, five winners. They're actually going to take the 15 finalists and support them, put them through what we could call an accelerator program mm -hmm. to very specifically give each of those initiatives, investments, programs, whatever they are, um, the necessary tools and knowledge to take what they're doing right now to the next level of impact. That scalability is exactly what the Earthshot Prizes are looking for. And we will be putting a lot of effort into supporting all of these to go to uh, to the next level. And that to me, honestly, is even more exciting than the winners. Right. And, and I mean, you know, I completely agree with you. And again, it wasn't even just the finalists, right? I mean, I was part of the technical advisory group and I saw a deeper range of some of the different entries and they were just astonishing, right? 750 astonishing. entries. What a role has been played by the Earthshot Prize and frankly by Prince William, whose initiative this was, right? He decided to use his name and his brand to really elevate these issues that are affecting our world and create what is clearly the most prestigious prize ever for environmental issues. And I mean, just look at the media. 
since then. We're recording this now in the middle of the week. This happened at the weekend. And it has been everywhere for the last three or four days. People have been mm-hmm. talking about what happened, who was there, how glamorous it was. I feel really excited about They're the also Astro talking Prize. about your shoes, Tom. Yes. They're also, I think that's confined to this podcast. I think it's possibly true that Emma Watson's dress was a bigger story than my shoes across the rest of the media. Mm. Um, not to us in the Global Optimism not to team. Us. Not to us. <laughs> Now, we don't have long, uh, as ever, in these intros, and we're going to go to an amazing interview in a minute. But maybe we should just say a quick word about TED Countdown, too, because we were all there in Scotland for a few days. This was the first TED event specifically focused on climate. It was four days long. There were both set-piece TED Talks that will be familiar to many listeners that will be recorded and released over the coming weeks, as well as incredible breakthroughs that were run by people like Kim Stanley Robinson and the Hip Hop Caucus and others. And Christiana, you also brokered a remarkable moment on stage where Ben Van Buren, the CEO of Shell, was on stage with Lauren McDonald, uh, a campaigner from Stop Cambo, Cambo being the Shell oil field in Scotland, together with Chris James, engine number one, um, who managed to put some new board members on the board of Exxon that are climate aware. And it created this moment that so many people have talked about. And any listeners who haven't seen it, it is available on TED.com. Um, but maybe you just want to briefly, Christiana, describe for the listeners what happened and what it felt like to be on that stage. Yeah, maybe it's 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 good to say that these two events that were basically back to back and not not purposely so, but ended up being back to back. What they have in common, Countdown uh, and um, the Earthshot Prize, is that they really shed light and gave a platform to so many positive things that are happening. However, the difference between the two is that the Earthshot Prize really focused on the solution space exclusively, whereas in TED Countdown, there was a balance between so many people working on amazing efforts to uh, address climate change, but also in very good balance, the depth of the challenge that we're facing, the urgency that we're facing, and the difficulties and the barriers. And so that was very specific to Ted Countdown. And I thought it was very well done to be able to to, to set the inspiration in the context of the um of the need that we have and of the honestly scary moment that we're all living in. Mm-hmm. Part of that was as Tom uh notes, this very difficult conversation between the CEO of Shell, the um, founder of Engine Number One, that is an activist uh, shareholder, and the selected voice for youth, a, uh, a member of Fridays for Future in Scotland, that was meant to be a conversation where each of them would put forward their passionate commitment to a particular view on how you bring about change. They all want much faster change, um, but they pursue it very differently, each of the three of them. And that was the intent, but it didn't go according to the intent. Because the fact is that after the CEO of Shell presented the view of Shell, um, Lauren McDonald, who had been chosen by her peers and friends to be the voice of a youth activism, just couldn't. She just couldn't bear the pain. And um, she was, she was quite un, uh, I don't even know what, what, what adjective would you use Tom there? She, she was not just adamant. She was 
she expressed her pain in words that were quite unusual for a public stage. And um, and though and those accusations that came from her were really just felt very deep. They just carved very deeply into everybody's soul and um, and heart. And and then she left the stage because she said she just couldn't share a stage with uh, with Ben Van Burden, the CEO of Shell. So the challenge for me as a moderator there was then, and now what happens um, when your oh, yep. star, uh, when your star speaker uh, leaves, leaves the stage, not even through, you know, the way she came, but actually she just basically catapulted herself off the edge of the stage to be um, embraced by her friends and then carted off. So, so quite the drama and the the uh, the challenge there was how do you take that drama to a healing place, yeah. and that is what I attempted to do, and then um, and then carry on from there. And and I think people said that you did a fantastic job, Christiana. And I'm not going to comment specifically on that moment, but I mean, I, I we had lots of discussions there, and the it was an amazing event. Some people did talk about youth, you know younger people being very kind of depressed or anxious. And I got to thinking about this, like, you know, if, if, if Jewish people were depressed and anxious in Germany in the 1930s, actually the, the solution was not to treat their anxiousness. It was to recognize the yeah. danger they were in. And I think we probably, I know it's not a very easy message for listeners to get, but, you know, anxiousness, you know, we, we, we humans, we, 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 we are, we are steeled to, to respond um, and now is a time for response. It's a moment now. You can feel how much is changing. And by the way, just on the flip side, Ted, so much positivity about technology and possibility, although, you know, this isn't just about kind of capitalism sort of get out. There are also major issues of inequality, fantastic contributions from indigenous communities. I can't get over the people of Palau becoming the first country to require an eco-pledge that you got to yes, sign in your passport. Yes, that was so wonderful. When you, when you joined, wasn't that amazing? And I mean, just to, just to conclude... A pledge to the children of Palau, even better. Much more relevant. And, and, and actually, my favourite TED Talk of all um, it was from the monastic, A Sister True Dedication. Oh, yeah. And I think there is something actually a little bit monastic about the TED format, which actually some people that doesn't feel very... Um, true very honest but actually uh, sister true dedication i think carried that perfectly and gave us great lessons by asking us who we were where we were and what we really wanted and uh, i think many people felt that that went very deeply and was very beneficial yeah that was an incredible moment i mean you could have heard a pin drop in that theater when sister true was giving that remarkable ted talk which i think is you know one of the best i've seen um and christiana absolutely just very worthwhile looking up and just just kudos to you, Christiana. I mean, that that moment on the stage with Ben and Lauren and, and Chris James, we shouldn't forget, who's an amazing leader as well. You know, you were really able to bring the room back to this point of doing exactly what Paul described, like to feel the reality of this moment because she's right, right? She is right. to That level of pain is not, is not incorrect. She's no, right absolutely. that we're facing absolutely. impacts on the world, as you say, that, that, that merit that. So how do we continue to have dialogue that enables us to move forward at this moment of pain where we both need to feel the reality of that situation and be practical about moving forward. So it's, it's an ongoing question. I feel I will probably come back to that moment in the podcast. So, um, 
Now, we're going to go to our interview in just a second. I'm aware, aware we haven't talked much about COP, and COP may be on people's minds at the moment, but just to reassure you, we will be getting into that much more next week, just before the conference opens. And in a minute, we're going to go to our conversation with Nicola Sturgeon. The first just to say, Scott, Scott Morrison Scotland. from Australia is now attending the COP, so he obviously was listening to last week's episode. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Who should we ask to attend this week and see if that carries through? President Z, Bolsonaro. the invitation is wide open. Boston, uh, President yeah, Bolsonaro. Pres- yeah. We'll, we'll go for two this week as the stakes are rising. GN Bolsonaro, please. Commitments by 2030 and attendance. Um, but before we go, Christiana, you wanted to say something, I think, about an email you got this week. Yes. Before we sign off, I got a, a, a truly a very important email from um, a friend that I wanted to speak to. So I got this week, a few days ago, a pretty angry, understandably angry email from our very good friend, Eric Usher, who heads up the UN Environment Programme Finance Initiative, UNEP-FI. Who, who is not an angry man, I should have to say. He's a very who nice is, man. Who is, who is a fantastic, fantastic leader and to whom we really owe much, much of the many different global partnerships that are coming together in the finance sector to for all of those subsectors of the finance sector to go to net zero by 2050. Uh, so huge kudos to Eric for his leadership, for UNEP FI, for putting up with as much as they've put up with and um, and for everything that they have really, so many ducks in a row that they have really been able to get here in preparation for COP26. Now, Eric was understandably upset because in our last episode, I made some snide remark about the term net zero. And he's absolutely right. So I stand totally corrected by you, Eric. I would like to clarify this. I am concerned, I've always been concerned about the impact of words. I happen to feel that words really do matter. When I got to the to the secretariat, I had them scroll through everything that was ever written about climate change and take out the word fight. I don't like the term, let's fight climate change. I had them change it to, let's address climate change. I don't like the word war room. I know what the concept of a war room. I don't like it. Can we actually change it to embrace room or peace rooms? (laughs) I just I just think that words really matter and they carry a certain energy with them. So my pet peeve around semantics and the importance of words and what message they carry with them is actually also about the term net zero. I totally get it that everyone has embraced this and I definitely do not want to swim upstream. And I definitely am not putting a question mark around or behind the concept because as everyone knows, I hope on this podcast and beyond, we all three of us, including me, are 150% behind the concept of decarbonizing the global economy. That episode was about a book called Net Positive. So I was just making the point that actually from a semantic point of view, it is actually more inspiring in my book to have a concept that is called net positive rather than net zero. Now, I know that there we're going to zero pollution. I know that the race to zero is about going to race to zero pollution, both locally and and globally. And I totally get it. And we're absolutely committed to that, stubbornly committed to that. In fact, optimistically committed to that. I just have a problem around semantics. So, that's my, you know, personal thing. I think the term net positive is 
more inspiring. And, and furthermore, it goes beyond not doing harm, but actually uh, beyond that to regenerating and, uh, and, and creating so much more positive space. So thank you, Eric, for your correction. I stand corrected. If anyone thought that I was objecting to the concept of net zero, nothing could be further from my thoughts or intent. I'm, it was just a semantic issue for me. And those who know me and work close to me know that I'm actually a semantics person. And I really do look at words and how we use them. So uh, with that clarification, in case it was necessary, we stand 100% behind Race to Zero. We have had uh, so many of the colleagues, including Nigel Topping, um, of the Race to Zero on here and we are totally supporting it. And furthermore, next week we will be having um, Tom Hale, who will come with one of his What the Hale uh, conversations because the Net Zero Tracker is going to launch this week, which is a system to make these Net Zero commitments transparent. So I hope with that very long explanation, I have actually redeemed myself with Eric <laughs> and with anyone else who I possibly offended. 110%, Christian, 150%. And if I might quote uh, uh, something on the theme, somebody wrote, I'd always thought that we use language to describe the world, but now I was seeing that this is not the case. To the contrary, it is through language that we create the world because it's nothing until we describe it. And when we describe it, we create distinctions that govern our actions. To put it another way, we do not describe the world we see, but we see the world we describe. Ooh, where does that wow. come from, Paul? Wow. Secret. Uh, I thought it up in the bath this morning. Couldn't, didn't get it from so, a book. Paul, how did, uh, so why listen, did you have that handy? Because you had no idea that I was going to talk about this net zero thing. That is, I, that is just way beyond. Go ahead. I, go made, ahead. I made notes on the book Synchronicity that my coach gave me. And uh, actually, do you know, Peggy Lou, who we're going to speak to later or in an interview in due course, also spoke about it. And I made some notes from it. And it struck me that that passage fitted exactly your comments. It does. Thank you very much. How fortuitous. All right. So in this episode, listeners have already had a correction from Christiana about technical issues and some poetry from Paul. So really, it doesn't get any better than that. No, we can stop now. now, actually, whilst we're ahead. Okay, thank you so much for that, Christiana. I think that's great to clarify. It's super important that we, everybody realises we're all on the same page in this remarkable transformation to net zero. Um, and now we're going to go to this interview. Nicola Sturgeon, of course, is the First Minister of Scotland. We had the opportunity to go around to her residence while we were in Edinburgh recently for TED Countdown. This Very is an nice incredible residence. interview. Very nice residence. She was very generous with her time. Um, we all sat there, me feeling very um, uncomfortable in my converse, has already been generously pointed out by Clay. Um, we'll be back afterwards. Enjoy this conversation and we'll be back after the interview for a bit more analysis. First Minister, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. It truly is an honor to have you on our podcast. And Today, you took the time to join us also in the morning mm. at TED Countdown. I must say, you were brilliant. You. you got a standing ovation, <laughs> and you made so many important points. I wanted to pick up one point, and that is the letter that you wrote to Prime Minister about the Campbell oil spill, mm -hmm. because it has been a big issue in Scotland, in the UK, and frankly, everywhere. And so I just wanted to invite you to summarize for our listeners 
why you wrote the letter mm-hmm. and what you expect to mm. happen or what invitation did you give out to the prime minister to reassess the mm. licensing well i wrote the letter because i believe that even actually especially for countries like scotland which has been for decades now very dependent on oil and gas not just for meeting our energy needs but also as a really important part of our economy uh, and therefore these are difficult issues but even especially for countries like us we cannot shy away from the tough decisions if we're going to live up to our climate obligations and we know we're in a transition away from fossil fuels um, but the question is how fast is that transition going to be made and do we incentivize ourselves to speed it up or are we inadvertently disincentivizing ourselves and i think the question many people have which i think is valid is while we know we can't switch off oil and gas overnight because that would be counterproductive and not possible to do is new exploration consistent with our obligation to the climate and if we look at cambo it's been licensed for i think 20 years or more it now has to go through a process to have permission to start to develop and explore the field if it was just applying for a license right now it would have to go through a process of a climate check so before which didn't occur 20 years which ago which didn't occur 20 years ago now arguably the process in the UK is not robust enough it could be stronger but it is there for new licenses so if it's there for new licenses for a field that has been licensed for many years but is now only now starting to develop that process now i think should happen as well i think there are big questions about whether new exploration is consistent with what we need to do on climate and i suppose my concern moving on from that is if we tell ourselves yes we're in a transition but we can go on drilling for more oil and gas do we then do what we have to do quickly enough to develop the alternatives so to make the transition as speedy as it can mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. so that's i've asked the prime minister to apply that assessment before approval is given for cambo I am at this stage not optimistic he's going to agree to that but I'll I'll continue to make that case. First minister can I just ask you we're we're sitting here in Scotland two weeks mm. before COP26 there's a lot of anxiety and kind of hand wringing about what big countries are going to do and is China going to come forward with a commitment but you just gave this cracking TED talk this morning mm. and I have to say it's one of the best I've ever seen um where you talked about the power of small countries mm. coming together and listening to you I was just thinking about this kind of this vision of small countries working together in a collaborative way trying to deliver big things and working it felt like a new kind of politics I'd love it if you could sort of yeah. set out your vision of how small countries can work together to really change the world. Yeah, I mean it's not just small countries, it's yeah. states and regions and small countries like Scotland or even bigger countries that are not independent sovereign countries so therefore members of the the UN. And of course what the big countries do really matters. We're not going to limit global warming without the Americas, the Russias, the Chinas, the Brazils. But if I look at the under 2 coalition which is the the coalition of I think more than 200 now mm-hmm. states regions devolved governments like Scotland's we collectively represent about 2 billion people mm-hmm. and often at our level is where the powers and the levers lie so about half point i was making at ted this morning about half of all the 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 reduction in global emissions that we need to see lie with us it would be down to what laws we pass what 
infrastructure we build, how much we invest. So we've got massive power and that power is in what we do. If we get our act together, that's going to not take the world, the whole journey, but it's going to take the world a fair bit along that path. We also have power to step in where big countries are not acting. Mm -hmm. And the best example of this is when Trump took America out of the Paris Agreement. It was states and cities that kept some momentum going. And of course, if we do everything we can do, then we can put pressure on the bigger countries Mm. to do more. So I I think we've got a huge uh, responsibility and also a huge opportunity to really flex our muscles leading up to COP and then coming out of COP. We've uh, just uh, about to publish a revised memorandum of understanding for the under two coalition, which moves from language that talks about uh, you know keeping temperature warming to warming to under two to to more specifically talk about one point five, commit right. us collectively to net zero uh, by twenty fifty and individually as as fast as possible, uh, and we'll be trying to get as many members of that coalition to sign up to it. Okay, so you know Scotland this is actually a huge success. You've been very successful. Um, how'd you do it? And I mean, can you really just like zero down on tactics, mm-hmm. hints? Like, what's the secret of getting climate leadership in a country? Well, I suppose I, I should preface my answer by saying we've done a lot, but we've got a lot more still to do. And the next, we, we've halved our emissions if you take the 1990 baseline. So we're halfway to net zero. The next half of the journey is going to be a lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. But what has been the secret of our success so far? Clear-eyed ambition and being very clear on the targets we set. And that's true now. We have not just a 2045 net zero target, but a 75% reduction target by 2030. 2030 is not that far away. So it really focuses the mind. Um, And trying to make sure that the targets are backed by actions and funded commitments. Our climate change plan uh, is very detailed. We're making lots of investment. We've had massive success in Scotland in decarbonising electricity, you know, just shy, about 97%, so just shy of 100% of our net electricity consumption is already from renewable sources. We're now trying to apply that same uh, urgency to decarbonising how we heat our buildings, our transport network, agriculture, big economic sector for Scotland. So it's about focusing, being very clear on what we need to do, trying to be open and honest with the population that it won't be easy, but it's important. And also, and this is, I think, a crucial part, not just seeing it as a burden and an obligation, trying. And candidly, Scotland's not been good enough at this in past years. If you look at wind uh, energy, we haven't secured enough of the supply chain economic benefit. So part of our message is if we do this properly, There's massive gains for our own country in terms of being the place where we develop the technology, you know, create the innovations and get the jobs and economic benefit as a result. So I don't know that there's any secret plan here, but leadership at a a national level, I think, is really crucial. First Minister, um, everyone knows that young people have taken to the streets in the past 24 Mm. months everywhere and are pushing us to take much more responsible action and much more responsible policies. Now, I've been thinking for a while, all of this generation is pushing us to think more green. 
I arrive in Edinburgh and I am picked up in a car, the driver of whom is older than I am, mm-hmm. and I'm 65. And he says to me, the first thing when I get into the car, he had no idea why, why I was here or anything. He said, you know, I am so delighted that the first minister went into an alliance with the Green Party <laughs> because the fact is we need much more green politics. That is a 70-year-old talking. Yeah. That is not a 12- or 14-year-old talking. So has the time come? for green politics here and everywhere else? Yes, and I'm glad we've got it in Scotland. (laughs) My party uh, was already quite green, um, but having the partnership with the Green Party makes sure we're not being complacent. We have an internal dynamic within government that is pushing us forward faster, and I think that's really important. Um, The interesting thing about the, the partnership with the Greens is that it wasn't politically necessary for either of us in the traditional sense that I needed the numbers in Parliament uh, or that the Greens really needed the validity and the credibility, we actually chose to come together to do what we think is the right thing for bigger reasons because we think it will be in the interests of the country. So account there of the the driver who picked you up is, I think, really important and and illustrative of not 100% of public opinion in Scotland or anywhere, but increasingly the public are ahead of politicians. Mm. So yes. it is the public that is pushing politicians to go further and faster. And that it's often an uncomfortable dynamic for people like me and for politicians, but it's a really important one. And and the, the young people, um, I think, you know, fair play to them, more power to their elbow. That's often very uncomfortable for people like me because, you know, even as somebody who prides herself in being, you know, perhaps at the the better end of the spectrum when it comes to climate leadership, they don't think I'm doing enough. Exactly. And it's good for me to hear that. And it's good for me to constantly be questioning myself uh, as a result of of what they're doing and saying. Um, And I, I think it makes it really important that we come out I'm struck by the the title of your podcast, Outrage and Optimism. And it sums up, in a sense, the challenge of COP. You know, I I hope COP gets further than people might think it's going to at the moment. Is it going to get far enough? I think that's a big question. But it's important we come out of it with enough progress and enough optimism that we're on the right track and can go further. The worst thing would be to come out where people are so outraged that they start to lose faith and lose trust that we can get where we need to be. What would be the best result for Scotland? Uh, obviously for Scotland, as as the country that's hosting COP, we want it to go really well logistically, practically, from a security point of view. Um, but, and from a, a Scottish perspective, we want to be seen to be leading by example and showcase the country and provide a short window for mm. investors who, who are looking for places to invest. But for Scotland, it's important that it's a success for the world. What I would love to think would happen is that we come out not just with the, you know, the headline financial commitments met, 100 billion. That's probably where I'm most optimistic that we might see success. Um, But that we would come out with NDCs that add up to commitments with implementation that will deliver 1.5 degrees or is at that, least keep it alive, well, as we that, say. that's the point I was going to make. That's the ideal. Yes. Is that realistic? Yeah. Yes. Possibly not. Mm. 
therefore what we need to do is keep it alive. And yes. that's the point I'm making about the need to come out with credibility because it has been kept alive and in a real sense. And then there is some clarity of where we go from keeping it alive to actually delivering it. And that I think is is what success looks like in the real world. If you're a young person though, I'm very aware that looking at world leaders coming together to haggle and negotiate over the future of the planet is not that inspiring for you. So it's really important that we make sure we're pushing the ambition as far as we can take it. And keeping 1.5 alive is not going to be enough for them. Absolutely. And nor should it. It shouldn't be enough for any of us. Any of but them. it's better than not keeping it alive. Yes. <laughs> but it's 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 not enough to keep it alive and then not know where we go so that it, it dies a couple of years later. Keeping it alive in order to then see a process kick in that gets it to where it needs to be is is crucial. First Minister, you have named the name of our podcast, Outrage and Optimism, and we want to ask you a cheeky question. <laughs> we have a tradition on our podcast that at the end of our conversation, we always ask our guests to place themselves in a spectrum because we believe that there is a spectrum between yeah. outrage and optimism. And we would love <laughs> for you to place yourself on a spectrum from outrage at the still lack of 100% sovereignty for Scotland mm -hmm. and optimism that Scotland will be an independent nation. Oh, I'm 100% optimistic that Scotland <laughs> will be an independent nation. <laughs> Why didn't we already know that? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I say that uh, because I believe it. I, I think Scotland is on a path to being independent and we will be an independent nation. I can't name you the date um, although I think it will be sooner rather than later. And I shouldn't be complacent in saying that because the only uh, circumstance in which it will happen, and I believe it will, is when a majority of people vote for it. It won't happen because I want it, uh, nor will it uh, be prevented from happening just because Boris Johnson, for example, doesn't want it to happen. It will happen because people across Scotland want it. And when you look at, we're talking about the the passion of young people for climate, uh, tackling climate change. If you look at the you know, opinion poll evidence on views of Scottish independence, you know, massively, massively uh, young people are in support of Scottish independence. Um, so yeah, I believe it will happen. So on that, if not on everything else, I'm very optimistic. First Minister, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you for taking the time on a very busy day. Thank you for hosting TED Countdown. Thank you for hosting COP26. Thank you for inviting us to your home. Well, thank you very much for being here. It's a real honour and privilege as always to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So what a privilege to get a chance to sit down with First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Now, I've long admired her um, as a political leader, as incredibly... She makes an incredibly good case when she presents issues uh, and just a very accomplished politician. What did you both leave that conversation with? I, I, I admire her enormously. Um, I think that there is something about 
Scotland and the fact that she is the leader of a Scotland that very much wants to be an independent small country. Um, and she's a natural leader um, in that role. She's talked to her people about climate change for many years. There's been a consensus built up in, in Scotland, extraordinary achievements. She co-leads the Under Two Coalition with the Climate Group, which is doing stunning things. But she's also, you know, a, a broad humanitarian. I was listening to her talking about Scotland celebrating refugees. Uh, you know, she's committed to helping people fleeing the Taliban. I think she's actually doing something that maybe only a new country can do, which is to reinvent itself in a new model with global actions, global responsibilities. Do you know Scotland's got a climate justice fund to support decarbonisation outside of Scotland? Uh, you know, pioneering projects in Malawi and Zambia because Scotland believes that it has a responsibility as an early industrializer to mitigate problems in other countries i'd really just you know kind of she she honestly in summary she felt to me like the future of politics oh nice i loved i loved the way she responded to my question about has uh, has the moment come for green politics um mm. and 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 all this, honestly right we should be we should be seeing that everywhere it's beginning to to pop its head up in germany as well um so you know Bring it on for green politics. It's about time. I was also um, touched that when we asked her for the best result from her perspective for COP26, of course, she she spoke about the um, nationally determined contributions adding up to 1.5. But I was actually very touched that she also put at the same level of importance the funding commitment to developing countries, because usually you hear that from developing countries, not always from developed countries. So I was very touched by that. Yeah, no, I mean, what an amazing leader. And I thought that, um, you know, that what she talked about, and this is in her TED Talk too, that I'm sure will be released soon, is just this, this politics of small countries being entrepreneurial, being creative, being innovative, finding solutions. And she was very clear with us. She was like, you know, we're not going to solve this without the big countries getting on board. But there is an amazing role for these small countries as beacons of innovation and creativity that can really move us further and faster forward. And so often in climate change, we have a problem of anyone feeling too small to solve this problem, right? Whether it's an individual or a company or anyone. And she's kind of turned that on its head and made it into a positive. Because we're small, we have a special contribution to make to this big challenge in the collective effort. And I just think that's such a helpful narrative to flip that around. And as you say, Paul, feels like a feels like a politics of optimism, um, which was which was great to see. Look out for Sea Star. Sea Star is coming. Sea Star is cities, states, and regions. Yes. It's where the work absolutely. gets done. That's where the sleeves are rolled up. That's where they're rolled up. Okay. So now we are going to leave you with some music. Uh, this week we have a band uh, from Norway, uh, a duo called Divest, with their song Something's About to Change. This is great. You're going to enjoy it. They're here as ever to introduce it. And we will see you next week when we will be just two days away from the start of COP26. Hope you're mm. all getting some rest before we see you in Glasgow. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. We wrote this song uh, together in the studio and uh, we were just jamming out on uh, synthesizers and stuff and Kasa was uh, walking around the studio with a mic and he came up with this uh, but I feel like something's about to change and we uh, kind of flipped out and we just started writing the verses, all the bad stuff that we feel in our lives and then we kind of ended with something's about to change because we had this very positive energy going on here and we felt like, okay, this is this is it. I think it's great when artists with a big following share good information about inequality and climate change and stuff. 
but it's also cool to see how bands are doing the job right now. Yeah, it's it's not just words anymore. It's uh, they're actually uh, uh, doing changes, and uh, you see big bands uh, sacrificing uh, their lifestyle and maybe their growth for the earth, and I think that's absolutely amazing. Great song. I really like that one. Divest with Something's About to Change. Hey everyone, I'm Clay, producer of Outrage and Optimism. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the credits. 
This uh, part of the podcast is a little wrap up and a good send off into the rest of your day from me. So back to Divest. Thank you so much to the band for letting us spin your track. This is a really good song, like I said. They named their new EP Mercury Retrograde after a random conversation they had with two Polish twin sisters. I like little details like that. It's really good. I added it to my Apple Music library. Go listen to it. Give them a follow. They have some cool, really well-produced live performances on their social channels as well. So thanks, Divest. And thank you to our guest this week, Nicola Sturgeon. And thank you to her team in Edinburgh for making this episode possible. I got to walk over to her residence uh, where we did the interview. It was a fantastic experience. Everyone there was just an absolute pleasure to work with and meet. Um, Ted will be debuting her TED Talk on October 30th as part of a live climate event on YouTube. So be sure to come back to the credits next week for a link to that. I'm sure I will have it there for you. So what I'd like to share with you this week. As mentioned in the episode, the TED panel on decarbonizing fossil fuels has already been released by TED, you know, unedited. You can go watch it right now. I've got a link for you in the show notes. And I don't say this lightly. If you are a listener of Outrage and Optimism, this is absolutely mandatory viewing. You need to hear Lauren's courageous words and see her follow her conviction to remove herself from the conversation. You need to witness Ben's presence and statement on his theory of change. Uh, You need to see Christiana's invitation for everyone to enter into the deep pain and move forward. Uh, Gail Whiteman and Johan Rockström, they make a surprise arrival to confront Shell regarding the climate reports they're releasing. It's really important that you witness this. You know, we're in a new moment beyond this. Everything's on the table. Everyone's getting involved. So take the hour to watch and listen and really wrestle with what everyone had to say. I mean, sitting in that room, you could feel the tension and the possibility and the outrage and the pain. And it's just really important that you go and witness it and feel it for yourself. So that is my invitation to you. And as a digestif and keto of Quartz wrote a short article, it's a five minute read where she interviews Christiana right after this event. If you are a leader, a moderator, translator, or a communicator of any kind, Christiana's words will leap off the page to you. This is how you do it. So please go read. It's only four questions. Check that out. Link in the show notes. Okay, that is all from me this week. Just a quick last thing before I go. It was so great meeting everyone at TED Countdown. So many of you stopped me to share words of encouragement and provide feedback on the podcast. It meant the world to me and the rest of us at the team. We are so privileged to have such a deeply intentional and active community. So just thank you. It was great to meet all of you. And I hope to see you soon. Okay, next week, another episode coming your way. So hit subscribe. We'll see you then.